0: special edition of the Directors Club podcast. Mm Mm-hmm, it's true. This is a bonus episode. Another one. I am Jim Lazkowski, coming at you live here um, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, I'm very, very, very happy with um, the uh, content my dear friend Patrick has been putting out, that... Uh, last bonus episode that was nearly four hours long, discussing horror movies that everybody sent in here. Oh, can't thank you enough, people, for your emails and support. And the uh, actually, uh, a lot of um, correspondence we've been getting here has been incredibly nice, and we really appreciate it. Anytime you want to send us an email, I hope you do. Even if you just want to say, hey, I just saw Interstellar and it sucked. Send us uh, an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And if you haven't yet, uh, give us a nice review over at iTunes. That would be great. Uh, The more, the merrier there, just so we can, uh, you know, build our audience slowly but surely here. I imagine for episode 100 coming up in about 20 episodes or so, maybe we'll do something extremely special. Uh, It won't be another clip show. Don't worry about that. I imagine we'll do our top 100 movies of all time. Um, since, of course, I'm very inspired by f- the Film Junk podcast. Anyway, um, so I suppose you're wondering how on earth an episode uh, without my dear friend and co host is going to be the least bit entertaining. Um, and what is the purpose of doing something like this anyway? Since, you know, most uh, podcasts work better um, when you have a plan, you have a guest. You have uh, an idea of what the show is going to be like, or a director in mind that you know you're going to be talking about. And it sure helps to have uh, someone as knowledgeable and intelligent and uh, hilarious as, as Patrick by my side. So um, maybe this will be drier. <laughs> um, I will try to limit the puns to at least four per minute. And um, I just wanted to catch up. A little bit with everybody, uh, through a monologue of sorts. You you know what's interesting, and I gotta say, going into what'll be one of many digressions, probably the discovery of the past couple of months, uh, besides what I'm gonna be talking about health wise in a minute, is uh, this podcast called Serial, um, and it is an addiction. It is, an absolute, it is like the Breaking Bad of podcasts, or I guess some people would compare it to True Detective. Or, I mean, even like an Errol Morris documentary or something. It's um, from the creators of This American Life, hosted by Sarah, and it sort of unfolds as one story, a true story, over the course of a season. And we follow characters... And I, this is based on a true story, like I said, and it's compelling. From episode one, I was hooked. You know, it's it talks about um, the murder of a high school senior, and um, her ex boyfriend is arrested, and he's sentenced to life in prison, and he may or may not be guilty. Um, so it, it's it's a story that. Um, you know, it raises a lot more questions than it answers throughout. And you begin to be suspicious of one person in particular. Then then you really start to question your allegiance to um, the main suspect. And you start to question a little bit about um, the ethics of what it means to host a podcast um, on a true story with an unsure outcome. And I guess what I find very interesting about it is um, just, I, th- I think it's breaking ground. I think it's it's something that uh, could possibly become the next big thing. I know like Welcome to Night Vale, if that's a huge thing. I know there's a lot of serialized stories told in the form of podcasts. It's not like this is the first but it seems to be the first, at least in my mind, that's doing it right. Um, and I uh, I can't get enough of this story. I think it's, it's something that has compelled me to um, consider podcasts as um, some sort of potential to be an audiobook kind of approach, too. And that's really interesting. It's a really interesting idea, like waiting week to week to hear somebody tell a story. And, obviously, it's not a monologue. There are are, um, people interjecting with their thoughts and opinions and interviews and whatnot. Um, And I imagine that most solo shows, like this episode you're about to hear, can come across as a little indulgent. And maybe people will compare me to Eric Boghossian and Talk Radio or Christian Slater and Pump Up the Volume, (laughs) since that's all they do is ramble on into a microphone and hope that they uh, stimulate people, intellectually, hopefully, and emotionally. And that's not really what I'm intending to do here. I mean, obviously, I hope it's not a dull listen, but what is the purpose of doing something like this, I guess? Um, And it's also tough to just think off the fly. And I've gone back and forth on whether or not this is worthwhile to do in the first place, but honestly, it's giving me a chance to sort of distract myself by focusing on movies and sort of clearing the air and giving an update on what's been going on. And, you know, whether or not you're a loyal listener and or maybe you just listen to the show just for all the movie insights and don't particularly find personal stories all that interesting. So we don't do it very often, and we don't elaborate on what's going on in our personal lives. And I don't know. I have no qualms about doing that, but I don't know if it makes for you know, it doesn't adhere to the format. So I guess this is a bonus episode that you can choose to delete from your um, archives later on or, you know, after you listen to it and just say, okay, well, that was um, cool or it was just a dull slog. But I'm hoping right now I can talk to you about what um, has been going on and what prompted my leave of absence was Nothing short of a nervous breakdown of sorts. I I know Patrick can attest to having bouts of depression. And well, within the past three months or so, I, I've i struggled with a few things going on, including depression and anxiety. But for a while, there was this missing piece to my puzzling health. <laughs> I, I was seeing a few doctors here in Grand Rapids, including a neurologist. And for a while I was having j- just these crazy symptoms that ranged from migraine headaches to tremors um, and just th- th- things that seemed very out of the ordinary from even for me. And they were just taking its toll um, kind of on my ability to get a good night's sleep as well as functioning at work and at school. And stupidly, I would say, I was drinking a lot. Um, I think I was self-medicating in hopes that you know, I could distract myself from these physical symptoms and just, um, um, emotional issues, just dealing with what was going on, um, with my health and with just like feeling a little, not out of place, but just, you know, almost like having an out of body experience where things felt unreal and I couldn't exactly decipher at times, um, between the drinking and the physical symptoms and my lack of sleep, I think all of it just sort of culminated. And I was putting my dear friend and roommate, Heather through so many ups and downs, mostly downs. And, you know, she was starting this wonderful new relationship. And I, I felt, I felt so much guilt for having to be a downer and say, Oh, this I'm in pain and this is happening. And this crazy thing went on when I went to the doctors and, Of course, when a neurologist told me that it is more than likely that I have Parkinson's, I wasn't dealing with that well. As, you know, I I know Michael J. Fox didn't deal with it well. It took him a while to come to terms with it. Um, And that diagnosis turned out to be inaccurate, folks. Um, I remember putting a Facebook post about it and everything, and um, what prompted this revision was an MRI that I got because I kept having migraines, despite being placed on Topamax and other things. And supposedly, uh, it's I still question the validity of these results to this day after everything that's gone on. But there was this strange mass in the interior cingulate cortex, which is an area of the brain that I had studied as an undergrad. And they did a stereotactic biopsy, and um a low grade form of cancer was detected, like practically the lowest of the low, so I wound up seeing a specialist, and the specialist said that it could either dissipate or grow, and I had obviously age on my side, and um clearly my immune system is you know fairly damaged <laughs> from a crazy thing that happened to me that I won't get into right here although if you know me personally you know what that is all going all the way back to high school so when the C word was brought to my attention I was petrified i was also baffled to be honest i was in denial um i had told my roommate about it and you know it was one of the f- i didn't really tell anybody else and that put a lot of pressure on her and I felt really awful after a while. And I don't know, like I just kept having pain and the same type of pain. Um, and certainly migraines consistently. And I was trying to drink and (laughs) I was just, you know, on a couple of medications that you shouldn't be mixing alcohol with. So I was a mess essentially. And I couldn't even come clean to my family. Um, about the possibility of essentially dealing with a tumor. (laughs) What's weird is um, I I even heard recently on Mark Maron's podcast with Dr. Drew about how cancer cells can temporarily erupt into a mass, but then simply not reproduce and go on to become harmful. Since we all have cancer cells lying dormant in our bodies, sometimes um, an MRI can detect something a biopsy can detect another thing and then it turns out oh actually it's not a big deal after all well luckily the mass dissipated and by the time i went to the er one night and got a cat scan there was no mass um at all nothing however i wasn't pleased with the uh the service i guess (laughs) i received at the hospital here but that's a whole other story um (laughs) So two days after going into the ER, I began to see something weird develop on the left side of my face. Uh, I thought it was an allergic reaction to some new medication, possibly. I called the pharmacist. I called my family doctor, and when I got a hold of the family doctor, uh, it was like late Sunday night. Based on my description of the rash on this, only on the left side of my face, uh, the doctor surmised that I had shingles even without seeing me or anything. I just described exactly what it was as I was looking at it, Um, which I always assumed I didn't have to worry about or that nobody has to worry about until later in life, like when you're in your sixties or whatever. But apparently a few people around my age, including a couple of friends on Facebook, they have dealt with shingles. Um, Even my favorite movie podcaster, Jay Cheel, uh, sent me an email and said, Yeah, I had shingles. They caught it early enough and it wasn't too bad. Um, mine is r- pretty bad, I gotta say. Um, and it's mostly because I have a compromised immune system. Um, and I haven't been in- infused with s- a lot of hope because the majority of research I've done, cl- you know, they all say that even after the rash disappears, which mine mostly has there is so much damage done to the nerves that it can take months to fully heal and for the pain to go away. Like some people deal with it. That's mostly the elderly, but they deal with it for a couple of years and that is fucked up to me because dealing with this for close to a month now has been one of the most horrific bouts of pain uh, that I have ever experienced. It's Like nerve pain is so intense. And I would say that the first week of staying home, dealing with the discomfort was one of the most difficult stretches of time that I've had in a while. And, you know, it was around this time, a lot of good news was coming from Heather. And, you know, I depended on her as a source of socializing for a long, long time. Um, and she, you know, obviously has met an amazing guy and she's making plans to go to Europe and, um, I'm, you know, ecstatic about all the good things that have happened to her. But since I relied on her for most of my socializing here, um, in a new city, um, you know, like I I knew things were going to change and they had to change. And I also... Felt like well, I need to try and make new friends, but God, I don't feel like going out or doing anything when I have fucking shingles, you know. But something I just because everything had changed, mostly for the better, especially for Heather, um, you know, and because I was dealing with one of the worst health ailments I've had since 1996, and throughout anxiety and depression, difficulties with my job. Feeling underwhelmed with my graduate program, I made a radical decision to move back to Illinois, um, including to be back with um, a number of friends and family that I've missed. And I'm planning on stay, sticking around there for about a year or so, depending on job prospects and where I finish up school and whatnot. And the moment I made that decision, I felt immediate comfort, I gotta say. And obviously for the listeners out there, it also means that Patrick and I will be recording in the same room without Skype in our way. Um, so that's a plus that you can look forward to um, probably later this year, definitely for the uh, Robert Altman episode and the best of uh, 2014 episode. So yeah, Um it was an insane decision because I really wanted to make it a go out here in Michigan, but I haven't been as happy as I'd like, and it's not my fault. It's just the circumstances. And like I said, because I'm dealing with a post-shingles um, nerve pain, which is essentially neuralgia or whatever, I don't know how you pronounce it, but um, it's the worst. It It feels like one side of my face cannot be touched without it feeling like it's on fire. Or sometimes it feels like there's lightning going off in different places, creating these painful bursts of electric shocks. And other times it just tingles like pins and needles. And that's just uncomfortable rather than painful. But for the most part, it is painful, especially late at night. The worst part is when I'm trying to sleep. If I toss and turn onto the infected left side of my um, face, I wake up and I'm in pain and sometimes it travels it shows up in my teeth, my ears, my head, my jaw or anywhere on the left side of you know my face. Uh and the worst of it sometimes just shows up in my ear like on the inside very deep down. It just like bursts of electricity that just so it's so sharp and I have this constant urge to itch or I mean scratch my face. But when I do it makes the pain worse. So it's like it's this really vicious cycle I'm going through right now. And I wanted to just, I don't know, get in front of a microphone. Yes. Vent for catharsis a little bit, but also to let everybody know what I've been going through. And I'm not looking for, you know, a plethora of emails saying, Oh, poor Jim, I hope you feel better. I mean, I appreciate it. Obviously I love when people comment on Facebook and, you know, I, I obviously know that this is going to subside and definitely, go away, but it, it seems like it could take a while from a lot of research I've done and from personal accounts, um, personal accounts or recounts <laughs> from other people who've had shingles and they've said that, oh yeah, it took me three months or six months to get back to normal. And that freaks me the fuck out because like I'm going in a month and this is one of the worst things I've dealt with. <sighs> so yeah, um, trying to think of where to go from here because, um, you know, okay, I got to look at the bright side as I'm one to do. I will say that there are moments where I can sit down for two hours pain free. And I mean, I think it's because at least one medication tends to work for a short while, but then it wears off and I'm back to hurting again. But honestly, I think the best medicine is recording a song or, of course, getting back to the theme of the show, watching a movie. When I was a kid, I, I would stay home sick and I'd watch favorite movies recorded onto VHS tapes over and over and over again. And for the first week, I had shingles with the rash and feeling miserable. I stayed home from work, dropped out of school, made that decision to move back to Illinois, and I was very depressed, um, lying down in my bed, eating lots of soup, drinking lots of tea, and I did something I haven't done in so long, and it's weird timing because I've taken this leave of absence, but I started binge-watching, like, like I haven't in years because of school, um, and because I've been working, obviously. So I've had this free time. And even though I know it's not for the best reasons, I realized that, my God, movies make me feel so connected to myself and the world, and along with music, too, and reading, um, talking with friends. There are so many reasons to remain optimistic throughout what I would consider to be a, a long stretch of pain that possibly could go on a lot longer than I wanted to you know, I don't want it to last another day, but if I have to deal with this for another three to six months, you got to find reasons to stay hopeful. And obviously movies is a huge reason. Uh, I want to talk about some movies that I've watched recently. And obviously I'm going to cut here or soon and break for a little bit just so you can catch your breath and I can catch mine and get some more water and uh, play a little song. And yeah, that'd be cool. Hmm. So, you know, like I said, it's, 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 it's been a roller coaster recently. And I realized that even when the medication wears off and I struggle, I can look forward to a couple hours to escape myself. You know, and there were some days recently where one film, you know, within a span of a day wasn't enough. I went with four. I watched four movies straight in a row, which I gotta say was something that I'd forgotten how much I love to do and rarely have the time to do. I mean, it's a horrible reason that I've had the ability to do that, but look I got to do something that I enjoy and got a lot out of so now that I've given you a long winded update here let's go back to what this podcast is all about um when we come back I'm going to talk some movies and boy did I see some good ones and some crazy ones but I don't even know the number uh, you'll have to go to letterboxd Instant gym to see all my star ratings and everything else but I'm definitely going to point out some ones that I think are worth mentioning for a good while so yeah cool I watched a film today in hopes it would be good hellraiser manger pain Shaft splice and Mr. Brooks Real steel choke poltergeist Rio Bravo crank the sting Something wicked this way comes Menace to society when will I be loved? The sweetest thing My favorite therapy Is watching a movie Scenes from all- Standing here in the lobby of... Celebration North Cinema here in Grand Rapids, having just seen and walked right out of Interstellar with uh, a dear friend of mine, Derek Camp, a huge Christopher Nolan fan. Um, I just want to get his initial reaction to the movie, walking right out. What are your feelings at this moment in time?
1: Oh man! Hello, internet. I like it a lot. Um, <laughs> incredibly, Sorry, in yeah, Dumb. and uh, incredibly suspenseful. Um, the score was just brilliant and um, it played out very nicely. Um, few moments of uh, frustration. A few dramatic elements. Am I allowed to give spoilers on this? <laughs>
0: I wouldn't just yet.
1: Just yet, okay. Um, a few elements of just kind of like, you know, very clear plot devices to um, to advance the story. So if you get past those um, and enjoy the, uh, enjoy the, the suspense and the, the plot line, I think it was very awesome. Um, got a lot of notes for being a very long movie, so I'm not quite yeah. sure how I feel about that. I think I need to process a little bit more about, like, if it needed to be that long... Um, I never felt that there was extraneous stuff, but mm-hmm. I think maybe there's a possibility it could be tightened up a little bit. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think, uh, definitely like it, definitely want to see it again. Don't know if I'll be able to see it in the theater again. Yeah, no But, kidding. um, it was, uh, certainly very fun. And, uh, yeah, I still love Christopher Nolan.
0: As well you should. Um... I'm going to take some time to process my thoughts on this as well, but I'm curious, right now, where would you rank it in the Christopher Nolan canon in terms of his filmography? I mean, obviously, a second viewing is probably going to affirm how you really feel and where it belongs in the uh, list of, can- of Christopher Nolan films, but I'm just curious if where you would place this right now.
1: Wow, that's a tough one. I
0: I know. <laughs> You don't have to answer
1: Yeah, I don't know if I can. See, because that's the thing is that, like, you know, trying to rank all this stuff. I mean, it was a very good movie. Um, I'm trying to think of all the other Christopher Nolan stuff, and it was, you know, I guess not not at the top, obviously. I think that he's done a lot better stuff. I think that um, something like um, Inception is the same sort of, like, you know, suspense and music and, you know... That was a little bit more um, put together, I think. Um, You know, the Batman movies were certainly very good, but those kind of pale when you start realizing all the plot twists and turns and all that.
0: Yeah, I have problems with the Dark Knight because of that. Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) So, you know, I think if we take a step back, I would definitely, you know, say it's... um, I don't know, see, but that's the thing of like saying like on the continuum here mm-hmm. on all of his canon then that means something has to be on the bottom and so what would be his worst movie? And it's not like any of the movies are bad. Yeah, so right. that's it's kind of hard for me to process it that way. So I'm going to say not his best work, but definitely a really good movie.
0: I would agree and uh, I'll give my thoughts when I return home later this evening. Thanks Derek for being on the show. No problem. <laughs> Okay, so I'm back at home, like I promised, and (laughs) Interstellar is a very, very good film. Um, It's far from perfect. I I don't even love it quite as much as Gravity from last year, at least on a first viewing. Um, And sadly, my first viewing was saddled with a neighbor next to me saying things like, Oh no, it's a dust storm! And, oh cool! And, oh that's funny! Um, people who can't internalize their um, reaction to a movie while in the theater should just be banished seriously um, wait until you're at dinner with your friends to reflect and react um, savor the viewing experience contain yourself and let it all out when you're not surrounded by quiet people absorbing the the, the, the screen <laughs> so okay sorry about that um, interstellar Boy, oh boy, are there things in it that make it well worth your time. Uh, and obviously no spoilers ahead, so don't worry, but there are moments that are definitely up there with some of Nolan's best achievements, including a, a, a very well-done next uh, transition from driving away. Uh, McConaughey drives away, and then we uh, get a nice countdown to take off that I thought was beautifully done. Uh, And the thing about Nolan, I think, gets overlooked is his editing technique. I mean, obviously it's on display. If you're watching a Nolan movie, you kind of are made aware of it. But, um, you know, going all the way back to my favorite movie of his, Memento, every edit in that feels so precise and perfect. And there are cutaways here in um, in Interstellar that left me breathless, I would say. Uh, Even during the final act, which I'm still a bit unclear on. Despite digging uh, where it took me, at least emotionally, you know? I think a lot of folks feel it's a messy film. Um, The reviews have been fairly mixed. I mean, some have loved it and others have completely dismissed it, but I do think the overall response is somewhere in the middle, like a B, B minus range. Whereas right now I'm kind of at a B plus. You know, it combines emotionality with some lofty ideas about quantum physics, but it also is a little simplistic with its expository dialogue that we've come to expect ever since inception. And um, it also has this uh, layer of sentimentality with um, just moments of talking about love and its power. It's the power of love! Um, In that regard, it's not the science versus faith film that contact was but it kind of uh, dabbled in the same themes with the bond between parent and child um, and how love can transcend space and time and in my mind it it does take away from the existential and grounds the movie in this kind of familiar landscape about our feelings towards humanity and whether it's worth saving and um you know, how, how love can transcend in a way that we have yet to fully comprehend. It just sort of happens and manifests and we get to experience that and we should consider ourselves lucky when we fall in love and feel love, whether if it's for a parent or a child or a lover. (laughs) So there's a, a moment where I thought we were heading more into Kubrick territory and you'll probably know it. It's kind of obvious where, um, You know, the special effects take hold, the visuals become very trippy. Um, But much like AI, it decides to go for the heartstrings rather than the mind. So to me, that felt like a bit of a letdown, despite still giving, you know, mad props to Nolan because he does what he does so well. And, you know, it was his choice to go the sentimental route rather than the intellectual one. But there's still a lot to chew on. There's still something going on with the way things wrap up that, kind of leave me um, mystified. And uh, obviously the score and the sound design are impeccable. There are moments of nail-biting suspense and uncertainty, and there are moments of levity involving Tars the Robot. And of course, McConaughey and even Ath- Anne Hathaway, they, they give it their all. I, I think they did a damn good job. But from at least my first overall experience of seeing Interstellar, I will say that Something about the way things wrap up leaves me perplexed and not necessarily in a satisfying way. Um, but then again, I need more time and definitely a second viewing before the end of the year to know if it's going to be like a, a favorite of mine. I'm not having that sense of awe and wonder the way I did with Gravity when I walked out. But it, 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 it's still, there's, there's no denying that it's a must-see. It's something that you need to rush out and, and have an opinion about. Especially if you're, um, you know, a movie freak or a Nolan fan, and I certainly will say that it's, it could potentially become an A or an A minus film, but right now it's a B plus in my mind. So we'll see what where it goes once I read some things about it. Um, would love to hear Nolan's intent as well and um, experience the movie on Blu-ray when it comes out. And I mean, there's just, it's it's a movie that I will definitely say is incredible but also um, a little mystifying and um, imperfect. Whereas, you know, I walked out of Inception and felt like, oh yeah, well, that's an example of perfect escapist entertainment. But then again, how many people complain about that movie and its expository dialogue? So, um, you know, Memento and Inception are still at the top for me right now, but... We'll see where where time takes me with this film. <laughs> we had it all. You were a movie star, remember? Who was this guy who used to be Birdman? I like that poster. Wrote this adaptation? I did, yeah. And you're directing and starring in your adaptation. That's
1: ambitious. Are you afraid people will say you're doing this play to battle the impression that you're a washed up comic strip character? Absolutely not. That's why
0: 20 years ago I said no to Birdman 4.
1: Hold the mask off! You do Birdman. the
0: Now you're about to destroy what's left of your career. We should have done that reality show they offered us. Shut up. You, so- you know I'm right
1: you're so- Hey
0: what's up? you try to rest a little bit? You know it's always hard walking out of a movie that kind of invigorates you uh, in a way that you've yet to experience all year. Um, and so you know immediately I want to go, yeah, this is one of the best films of the year. It might be my favorite. I don't know. It's fresh in my mind. Obviously, it worked on me. It delivered huge laughs and some pathos, and it was done with style and energy, and it felt alive. Um, and I've read some reviews that feel differently, um, some takes on it that find it to be an interesting failure. Um, and I can see that perspective. Really. Um, there are moments where I'm like, well, this is probably going to lose people. Um, But for some reason, I was in tune with pretty much the entire running time. I usually need to see a movie twice, though, to know for absolute certain that it's destined to be an all-time favorite. Uh, You know, because first impressions are not always what I should go by. (laughs) You know? I mean, if I'm feeling a little vulnerable or sad and the movie affects me, speaks to me, makes me feel something that makes sense at the time, I tend to give it props almost right away. And I always bring up my sort of emotional bias up front when I review something. And since I've been vulnerable, obviously, for the past month, any movie I love kind of has the tendency to get a lot more praise than maybe it should. Um, it has him doing this sort of monolog thing. It reminds me of the beginning of the Brett Easton Ellis podcast, which I kind of recommend with reservations. Um, because he always opens the show with like just these rambling sort of um, diatribes. It's kind of fun. Um... But yeah, I, I know I speak in hyperbole and my mind changes. There are sometimes, and even recently, rewatching Memento, where I thought, I think this is my favorite movie. No, Paris, Texas is still my favorite movie. Shut up. But it's possible that after a second viewing, um, and this goes for most movies, but with Birdman, I think I might like it more or I might like it less. And I don't know, despite the feeling that maybe it was running out of steam a little bit towards the end, I still adored everything about it. It had like I know nobody's brought this up. It had this like manic David O. Russell quality to it. It's I guess it's kind of like meta screwball comedy of sorts, and obviously it has great actors poking fun at themselves in this kind of hyper reality. That I won't. I I will admit that this, the 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 script gets preachy, and I think even scenes like with the with the film or with the critic um, can rub people the wrong way. But this is a really showy movie in terms of the acting, uh, the way the camera moves, the um the score, the rhythmic drumming score. It's just a movie that sort of screams at you, this is what what I am and this is what I'm doing, and I didn't find it to be a pretentious, you know, mess, like some people feel that it that it is, and I don't find in your direction here to be showy. And I like that he finally has a sense of humor and isn't doing the fractured narrative structure that he's kind of known for early on in his career. Um, And I did really, I actually like Amoris Peros and mildly, um, it's mostly for the acting in 21 Grams, especially Naomi Watts that I like. And that's something I've kind of brought up in spurts here on the show, is that sometimes a movie with great acting can sell me. Like, I can sort of go, okay, maybe that wasn't the greatest story, or maybe the direction was flawed, but sometimes I just love to watch great actors go to town, and that's kind of like, you know, sort of the fan of theater in Me Too a little bit. It's like, I want to watch actors go for broke, and maybe that's why even something like Magnolia, even though I can recognize it for its flaws, the fact that, I mean, well, that's that's not a good um, comparison, because there's so many amazing things about that movie. From the directing, the editing, the the score, um, but I'm just saying, in terms of movies where just great actors get to um, do their thing and impress me and give chills down my spine at times, is some is sometimes like all it takes for me to give a movie the big old thumbs up and five stars. And there were moments involving Edward Norton and. Michael Keaton and Naomi Watts and where I'm just like, yes, uh, I'm, I'm in, I'm all in for this movie. And it sort of complements like the, uh, unbroken shots. Well, they're not really, obviously there are transitions and there are things that, um, it's just, a, you know, that it, it is a little bit of a gimmick. I, I won't lie that his choice was to like, make it seem like it's all one flowing shot. Um, and i didn't mind it i mean I, I thought that the the choice to do that complements the energy and the mood of sort of this you know fractured mind that's out of control and michael keaton's character is constantly moving with anxiety and is having a midlife crisis and michael keaton is really up to it up to the challenge i think i don't know if he relates but um he certainly you know, there's just just the whole obvious meta-commentary on Batman and his place in movies today, but to me, he proves that he's just a great actor, and I've always felt that way, whether if he's doing comedy or drama, because I really loved him in a movie called Clean and Sober, and obviously, he's one of the many things I love about Jackie Brown, and since then, I kind of hoped he would take on a leading role like this one. And Edward Norton? Jeez, he, he also steps up to the plate in a way that he hasn't in a long time... So it was just a joy to see this movie in every way. I It's a treat to see Edward Norton and Naomi Watts go at it together, because there was a time when I felt both of them were two of the best actors working, and then they sort of had this um, period of, I don't know, just inactivity or not choosing very interesting roles, and this is a an actor's movie. This is very, very theatrical, <laughs> for obvious reasons, and I mean, it, I will say that where it chooses to go in terms of, um, you know, uh, stretching plausibility, or, I mean, not necessarily, but just, like, getting so much caught up into almost a schizophrenic state of mind and um, being caught in his hallucination, I think he could lose people, but it didn't for me. And the ending is very interesting, and it's commentary on... The theater and commerce and art and um, just trying to stay relevant in a lot of ways. And even there's a, a dig at social media and stuff like that. I mean, it's just, it's jam-packed. But I I really thought even just for pure entertainment, it is one of the best movies of the year. It is something special. It is great to invest time in these narcissistic characters going through um, a crisis and overall it just made me feel good even though it's messy and I can admire a movie for its ambition even if it can be considered um, a failure and if some people walk out of this and say meh didn't do it for me I won't argue that but it worked in every way for myself and that makes me very happy to say because um been having a bad couple of days and seeing something like Birdman is uh what the doctor ordered. Oh, do you want to hear my cat using the scratching post right now? That'll be a good transition. Oh no, I think she stopped. Usually she goes at it a lot longer. Right, Lucy? Lucy. Now I totally feel like Mark Warren. False move. Man. Uh this one I don't want to say a whole lot about, honestly, because uh, I mean not to uh, Plot Points, yeah, there's definitely a couple of surprises, but it's a movie that I think you just dive right in, try to track down. I don't think it I don't even know if it's available on DVD, I should look, but I am a huge fan of a simple plan, as most people know and the fact that billy bob thornton and bill paxton were in a movie together from um you know in the uh in the 90s early 90s um i had to f- track it down and it's also one of roger ebert's um great movies i i believe and he felt it was one of the best of the year if not number 1 or number 2 if i recall um and oh boy ha <laughs> <laughs> ha yeah um it, it's weird. It doesn't have, like, the sense of humor of a Coen Brothers movie, but, you know, I mean, there was this just, there was a wave of a lot of film noir type pictures, you know, long after something like Blood Simple came out. There was just this um, barrage of them in the early 90s, and, um, you know, the kind of movies my mom would love because it just involved, uh, you know, sex and betrayal and, you know, a satchel of money or a, you know, a gym bag full of money. And, you know, it was just simple stories told, you know, with a wink at times, but also just movies that you get caught up in because of their simplicity, because here it is, here's the story, here are the characters. But there's something about one false move that surprises me because it starts out... uh, not necessarily with caricatures, but there's just like, okay, Bill Paxton is playing Bill Paxton. You know, he's, he's... It really could have sort of come across as a stereotype, as this, you know, typical Southern sheriff stereotype. And Paxton does something, especially in a particular turning point that takes place in a restaurant where he's overhearing FBI guys um, basically Um, make fun of him, you know, and they're not made aware of it at the time. And, you you know, Bill Paxton's character, he plays a sheriff in a small town and, you know, like a good old boy persona. And um, the LAPD, man, I mean, they come in to the small town because they have a feeling that these criminals that did this drug deal gone bad are going to swing through this small town because uh, one of the criminals has relatives there. And what occurs, basically, is Bill Paxton, the sheriff, teaming up with the LAPD, getting ready for them to come through town. Um, and one of the criminals is played by Billy Bob Thornton. And it's it's a movie that sort of sneaks up on you because, like I said, it, it didn't really impress me at first, but... Like I said, there's this turning point in the restaurant where I really felt for Bill Paxton's character because he envisions himself as possibly being able to join the LAPD and they're sort of making fun of that notion. Um, And then, of course, you just get involved with the characters because they're so fully realized. And a lot of this probably has to do not only with the script co-written by Billy Bob Thornton, but because of director Carl Franklin who did uh, The Incredible Devil in a Blue Dress with Denzel, which, if you haven't seen, I highly recommend that. Um, And then he sort of did a a stretch of forgettable movies like High Crimes and Out of Time. But One False Move does everything right, the way a thriller should deliver. The way um, it, you know, um, almost works as a character study and... For me, like, just the story itself is a case study in how to write compelling, well-structured crime thrillers with fully realized three-dimensional characters. And um, by the time a confrontation occurs of sorts, you get really caught up in it. Even if, you know, it's, it's sort of, you know, in the same way Jackie Brown uh, meets its inevitable conclusion it's done so in a very not anticlimactic way because that's more has a negative connotation it's just simple um and not full of a lot of showiness or a long drawn out um shootout of sorts and i like that and like i said it could have been a really sort of bland early 90s but every now and then, like something like this, or The Last Seduction by John Dahl comes out, or even Red Rock, Red Rock West. There's uh, Once in a while, like in, in the 90s, something would surprise you. And the fact that I hadn't seen this until now is, is something nice. And it was just a nice surprise, I should say. And the acting's great. And I loved it. I really think, if you haven't seen One False Move... It's well worth your time, and if it starts out going, hmm, this is nothing special. Just give it time because it sort of sneaks up on you in, in ways that I always enjoy when I'm watching a movie where I'm like, eh, nothing special, but then, whoa, okay, I'm in. I'm definitely loving it. And to me, it's another, it's another classic in my mind that I I hope people will seek out and. I don't know if we'll do a Carl Franklin episode because I think he's only had two great movies as far as I know, the ones I've mentioned, but um, certainly well worth your time. Um, Yeah, I need to go quicker (laughs) because I have so much, but I don't need to go into everything. I don't need to tell you about The Thing or May or The Gate or other movies I've mentioned many, many times on this show. Um, the Babadook is a horror film from Australia from first time female director. And, um, it's fucking great. Again, another new favorite of mine. I mean, I still have to process the final act, um, but in terms of a, almost uh like I know Patrick and I have talked about this already but Oculus the way it's edited um with a lot of verve and vitality and just like immediacy um there's just a particular cut here involving there's this moment where um a child is screaming out to his mom and you know he's standing high up somewhere where he could fall there's just a cut um it's sort of like the antithesis of that moment in New Nightmare where um, oh my god, Dylan is trying to reach God and he falls to the ground Um, The Babadook despite its goofy title, which might turn some people off um, it is the antithesis of something like New Nightmare which just tells everything to its audience and speaks its thesis at every possible second Baba um, Babadook sort of plays on a subconscious level. It's a psychological horror film. I mean, it's got some scares. It's got some jumps. But like I said, that one particular cut really stuck with me as being an example of what I want horror movies to accomplish. And, um, you know, it plays with um, parental dynamics and the fact that, like, a son is struggling to uh, maintain emotional control while, you know, living with um, a seemingly stable mom, but then eventually we learn that's not the case at all. And it's just, it shows how taxing and exhausting being a parent can be, and the kind of toll it can have on a person's mentality. And uh, obviously, I need to see it again, because I'm having a second interpretation of it that is hard to Um, elaborate on without going into spoiler territory, and I kind of want to avoid that because A, I want Patrick to see this, I want everybody in the audience to see it without um, knowing too much, other than it's just a mother and son living alone in a house. Could be a haunted house movie, could not be. Involves the appearance of a um, pop-up book that um, plays a major role, and you'll see. It's just a fantastic horror film. It's my favorite horror film of 2014 by far. And I just found it to be, um, exactly what I would want from a horror movie. And it's like, it's just so assured in its storytelling, except again, I'm struggling. I'm wrestling a little bit with the ending. Um, and that's a good thing in my mind. I don't see that as a bad thing. Um, and there's an interesting theory from a letterbox reviewer, and I don't want to say its name, say say its name, <laughs> say that person's name, um, because you might just be tempted to go out and seek out this review. And well, I mean, obviously it's it's your choice if you want to get spoiled with what that person's interpretation of it is. But it's given me pause. It's given me uh, some reflection on what the. Um, possible subtext of of The Baba Duke could be. And it actually makes me want to watch it again tonight! I loved it. It's so good, everybody. Same goes for Nightcrawler. I know this is sound, starting to get boring. Um, but it's just because like I'm loving everything, or at least everything I'm talking about I love. And, you know, again, I don't need to go into Carnival of Souls, even though, oddly enough and Patrick's going to freak out, but it was my first time watching it. But it's also now one of my favorite movies. Nightcrawler is fascinating. I had a lot of high expectations going in, and for some reason, maybe it's just because of Robert um, Elswit's... Elswit? His... Um, um, history as a cinematographer, shooting L.A. so beautifully. I was thinking I was in for another sort of Drive, throwback, Um, and it does have a Michael Mann quality to it for sure. And it has a network quality to it, which I wasn't expecting because it has a lot of commentary on where we're at with the news media and uh, just how we're all sort of saturated with um, exploitive news stories, and you know, if it bleeds, it leads, that type of thing. Um, I was floored, mostly, by Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, As much as I really like the movie, I am telling people to go see it for one of the best performances I've seen in a long time. And it's by uh, a guy who I've always liked but haven't loved. Um, I think it plays fairly well in line with his character in Zodiac, but just a completely different sociopathic version of that character and his obsession. This character's obsession... Um, I think his name is Lewis Bloom, if I recall. He is um, driven. He's a fast learner. He's someone who's, who speaks in um, self-help book rhetoric, and he's he manages to um, win people over by just being a fast talker, fast thinker, but yet he has no time for empathy. He doesn't have any time to relate to people on a human level. Um, it, it he's just a creep. He's just, you know, a a weird off-putting individual that still manages to win people over who sort of, um, understand that sort of drive that he has to get ahead. And I really think it has a lot to say about just how, you know, people get ahead in America, um, on a very basic level. I think it's, you know, got its commentary sprinkled throughout about um, just how we react to, um, you know, how we sort of rubberneck with with the car crashes, and how when we turn on the news, it's just nothing but bad news, and somehow we want more and more of that. At least that's what we're feeding on, Um, you know, just clicking on every sort of crazy news story, and um, it really doesn't tackle that extensively. It more or less focuses on just news coverage. Um, especially with Renee Russo's character and a lot of the things that she says that they're looking for. And Jake Gyllenhaal just plays a guy going around um, shooting, you know, horrible things going on in L.A. And he's able to make a living by just capturing those on camera and selling them to um, news media. And Jake Gyllenhaal is just, he's something else in this movie. And he's having a great year with this An Enemy and then Prisoners from last year. So, I mean, I thoroughly recommend Nightcrawler. It has an incredible final act shootout. This is a movie that I have no reservations with the way it resolves itself. It just, it fits. It's perfect. It's in a way, it reminds me of, um, the, uh, writer director's brother, his script for Michael Clayton, which is another movie that the more I watch it, the more I consider it to be a favorite now because it's just pitch perfect. There's nothing wrong. It's, it's structure. It's like one of those movies that if I was a film professor I would show it in my class, especially if I was teaching a screen screenplay writing class. Um I would more than likely show broadcast news and Michael Clayton of all things um as being examples of what I consider to be damn near perfect screenplays. Um so I mean in in some way just I think just how everything sort of fits together and nothing is too showy in this movie. It just has a kind of like this clean cut, yes, A to B to C um structure, but at the same time it's it does everything right and well and never feels boring. Um does it stand out in terms of like being a groundbreaking movie? No. I don't think so. I think it's just it does everything it sets out to do and accomplishes it well and is anchored by an incredible lead performance. When those bulgy eyes Uh, I don't know about Jake Gyllenhaal I don't trust him anymore I decided to be a reliable nice guy but I don't trust him now after this Nightcrawler business what else did I see? Good god let's take a quick break back to reviewing i gotta figure this out maybe i'll just quickly go through a bunch of movie titles really fast um i think i've covered the majority of new releases i've seen okay obviously i got shingles before halloween came around bloody bloody boop um (laughs) what was that uh (laughs) a lapse in reasoning of some kind Mm. I think after getting an hour into this episode you're probably realizing why I need Patrick. Um so here we go. I'm gonna, just just going to fly down like my letterbox list here and go through some things I've seen and briefly give my two cents and grade letter. <laughs> grade letter. Letterbox uses stars. Mm, I'll just do it grade letter. Sinister I would give a C plus, maybe a C. Um I think Patrick has summed it up best. as it's it's really worth seeing for the um, Super Eight uh, footage and um, the real to real home movies that Ethan Hawke uncovers. That's really the freakiest part of the whole movie. It really gets bogged down, especially by the way it decides to um, conclude with what a shock, scary kids, which at this point in time, not very scary anymore and almost made me cringe and laugh, and not in a good way. Uh, So the way Sinister concludes is kind of um, a big middle finger to me. Not nearly as bad as Silent House, which to me felt like a complete cheat and cop out, and I hated it. But, um, you know, Sinister is good for some atmosphere and dread and cool visuals, but doesn't really add up to much, doesn't really sustain itself, and certainly has a shitty um, final act. Uh, Dawn of the Dead remake. Um, obviously, I like it more than Patrick, and I certainly would give it a B minus. Whereas the original, I would give probably a B plus. And uh, you know, the Fast Zombies. What can you say? And you know, Sarah Polly, uh a couple other good performances here and there. It's it's more comedic. It's got a pace and energy. I'm not at all a Zach Braff fan. No wait, Zach Snyder. Well, not a big Zach Braff fan either. Um, so, I mean, but it's actually probably the movie of his I like the most. And it's probably because it just plays with the zombie tropes. And, you know, it's fun. It's just a dumb, fun movie that I enjoy watching maybe once every three or four years. It's not like uh, a classic in any regard. But, uh, you know, for what, I, I watched into that movie with low expectations and was pleasantly surprised. One of the better remakes, much like The Last House on the Left remake. Um, Fallen is a Denzel Washington movie that has the whole body jumping, soul jumping scenario that kind of started with The Hidden, went to Shocker, and I believe the horror show, I think the horror show had, maybe, I don't know. I know there's some movies that just have that scenario where um, an electrocuted serial killer manages to jump from body to body and take possession of People and make it look like they're the ones doing all the killing. And this one goes on very long. It felt long. But, I mean, Denzel rules. John Goodman's good. Um, I knew exactly where it was going. The big twist slash reveal was nothing <laughs> shocking whatsoever. Um, yeah, it has a kind of a cool ending. I will admit that. Um, I think, again, B minus C plus in that range. Um, let's see what else here. The score is a movie I've seen before but had no memory of, and every now and then I like to dumb myself down with a simple heist-type scenario. And um, the stories behind this one, and Frank Oz, of all people, directing it, directing Edward Norton, Robert De Niro, and Marlon Brando, is kind of <laughs> strange to hear, where Marlon Brando was just giving everybody a hard time, especially Frank Oz, because he was always calling him Miss Piggy. Um, and he was just not very nice at all. And I remember Edward Norton saying he was shocked at one point because Marlon Brando was, um, I don't know, doing something bizarre, what a shock, while Robert De Niro was taking a nap, and they were supposed to be shooting. So doesn't sound like the best um, rapport on set there with everybody. And I will say it is kind of a dumb movie, another A to B to C heist movie where you know exactly how things are going to play out, and there's going to be double crosses. But... um. I, I, I don't hate it. I just, it's, it's forgettable. I mean, I've seen it once before. I was bored. I wanted something to fall asleep to. And oddly enough, I stayed awake the whole time. Well, that's kind of been par for the course. I haven't been sleeping well. Um, but uh, C, C+, plus, again. Um, it, I do like Edward Norton. What can I say? I, I wanted to see more Edward Norton in kind of a dramatic fashion. As much as I like him in the Wes Anderson movies, it's just a joy to see him um, go for broke and even act alongside De Niro and Brando, because he was once in that same caliber, and he probably still is. Um, Exorcist Three has one of the greatest jump scares in the history of cinema. It, but again, it's it's more of a procedural. It's more of a cop film, which surprises me on upon a Pana rewatch because I have memories mostly of just Brad Dourif and this tact on possession exorcism that I believe William Peter Blatty did not want to include. Um, it, it, it's a movie that I don't know... It, it's strange that it belongs in the Exorcist canon. It's just kind of a, a strange serial killer movie, more or less. It's a procedural at George C. Scott screaming and some serial killer going crazy. Um, it's... I like it. I will not go on record and say I like it more than the original, and it sort of stands out from the crowd... It's an unexpected horror movie of sorts, and the moments with Brad Dourif are ridiculously weird and scary and compelling. So uh, a B, I think, is what I would give The Exorcist 3. I would never lump it up. I never put any higher than that. It's not anything substantial, but if you haven't seen it, and you'll know the jump scare when it comes, and you'll never forget it. Um, Exorcist 2 is a piece of shit. I've never seen it before. I thought it was boring and ridiculous, and even though it involves psychology, I hated it. I hated everything about it. There's very little to say. Nothing redeems it in my mind. I don't know. It's It's got this reputation, and some people seem to defend it, uh, including Martin Scorsese, but for some bizarre reason, um, it still, um, is considered, um, an interesting failure. I don't think it's interesting. I think it's a chore to get through. I thought it was laugh out loud bad, and I would never, ever insist on anybody seeing it. So I think the only two Exorcist movies you ever need to see are Exorcist and Exorcist 3. Now, I saw The Devil. I don't know why I've been putting this off. I think it's because, like, most, um, Korean cinema, I believe Korean or Asian, I'm sorry if I get that mixed up, uh, it has a length of over two and a half hours, if I recall. And that intimidates me a little bit these days. Like, am I going to have the attention span? Am I going to sit through it? Um, Time is precious. Blah, blah, blah. And I thought I Saw the Devil was near perfect and really got under my skin. It's a fantastic revenge movie that's inevitably going to be remade. Um, And the kills in this are fucking unreal. The The visceral impact that this movie has while you're watching it is kind of unparalleled. And clearly that director is one of our very, very best alongside Bong Joon-ho at this point. Um, Brief Encounter is now in my top 20 of all time. It is fucking incredible. I would easily say it is my... Mm, I better watch it with hyperbole, but it's definitely one of my favorite romantic films ever made now. I would put it up there actually with before sunset um oddly enough it does contain um a train as sort of representing um the lives of the two protagonists you know on the move without true love going forward in different directions um it's a hard movie to elaborate on because of how much I felt while watching it. And unexpectedly so. I mean, obviously David Lean's made some classic films. Um, And this one is Criterion and also something that I've heard a lot about. It's a favorite of um, Mike D'Angelo, who might be one of my top five favorite film critics. Go to his letterbox. Make sure you follow that guy because he knows what he's talking about. And any time he gives a movie five stars, I try to go out of my way to see it. And this is one of them. And I'm totally with him about a particular scene that takes place in front of a fireplace. It makes me want to applaud. It I can and it moves me at the same time. It um is simple, realistically honest, unsentimental. Um it really is a, just about a love affair between two married middle class people over seven occasions, mostly against the backdrop of a railway station. Um, you know, obviously it's got th- Commentary on the housewife disgruntled looking for escape from her humdrum life and sterile marriage. And there's a really dashing, um, charismatic doctor who comes into her life and it's sort of about unrealized love, despite the fact that it is realized within them, and they can't do anything about it. And the best part or one of the many things that I adore about this movie is the use of Rachmaninoff. His piano concerto in this went on to be sampled, or actually the melody of it was sort of ripped off for that song, All By Myself. And (laughs) it's so crazy how when one of the characters in this movie is literally walking all by themselves, and you're hearing Rachmaninoff's melody from that song play, it's just kind of... um, Serendipitous in some weird way, and it's a special film. It sort of captures my feelings of love from a very subjective point of view. It's kind of downbeat. It's kind of um real. It felt real, and this is what nineteen forty-five. This movie came out. It just uh, it's very tender, but it's also painful. It's you know, and it's eighty-six minutes long. It's just everything I want from this romantic drama without you know necessarily becoming so operatic or Douglas circ like in any way. And it's just pure. It is everything that... I turned to my cat at one point and said, this is why I love movies. This is why I like making the time out of almost every day to at least sit down and watch something in hopes of feeling the feelings I felt during Brief Encounter. So everybody stop what you're doing, stop listening to my sad-ass voice, and watch Brief Encounter. It might be on Hulu Plus if you want to check it out via Criterion. And you should, if you haven't yet. Right, and right now it's up there with the apartment, and that is uh, not hyperbole. Miami Blues is this interesting movie f- by George Armitage that came out, I believe, in 1990, at least early on. It might be 80s, might be late 80s. And I remember reading the book... Which is crazy, because I was kind of young for that book. But I did go through like a detective phase, and this isn't really a detective movie. It's it's very um, Elmore Leonard-esque, watching this movie. It, it It's something that probably Tarantino or, um, well, obviously, it has that get shorted quality with the dialogue. And it's very fast-paced, fast-witted. Alec Baldwin, I think it might be my favorite performance of his of all time. And of course Jennifer Jason Leigh plays the prostitute that comes into his life and yeah she has a heart of gold. Wah, wah, wah. Um and it's just a really funny smart um caper con man kind of film that just it feels really unique and it's just it's just a strange movie that I think has that dark comedy that I love so much and that sort of permeated the late 80s and early 90s with a fish called Wanda sort of becoming its pinnacle. Or even something like Soap Dish, with its manic energy, was something that I loved, too. But Miami Blues is fucking incredible. It's another movie that, oddly enough, Mike D'Angelo gave five stars to. And I hadn't watched it in, like, 15 years or something. And I'm glad I revisited it. I don't think it's available. You not have to get it through special means. Um, Yeah. What If? You know, I don't have a lot to say about What If? Because it's got that 500 Days of Summer quality to it. And you'll either find it grating, or twee, or, or you'll just warm up to it because you love the characters. And I happen to be... I'm becoming more of a fan of Zoe Kazan, even though I wasn't a huge fan of Ruby Sparks. But And Daniel Radcliffe is great in this. It's just about a guy getting over his last breakup and then meets a new girl, and it's a question of whether or not they can stay friends or not. And let me guess, they may not. But it's fun and funny and very, again, smart and fast-witted Kind of like that Gilmore Girls fast-paced dialogue that I love so much. When that happens in a movie, I'm sold. Whenever there's just, like, this hint of homage to screwball comedy. Um, Which, again, I think Birdman sort of tapped into without being overt. Um, A couple more, and then I promise to wrap things up because I know how tedious this can get. Especially since, I mean, I'm looking over my list and there are a lot of movies on here. Like, you know, what am I going to say about Final Destination 2? Except the opening is amazing. amazing. And do I really need to go into Scott Pilgrim and my reservations about it? Um, And, you know, the fact that the more I watch Little Children, I like it more. Uh, I'm going to get to a couple more and then call it a night for everybody out there. You've probably decided early on that Directors Club is best with two or more, and I concur with that. Uh, Not that I'm trying to be, um, you know self-flagellating or flagellating you know what i mean just taking things lightly but um i I realized that this should not go over an hour and 15 because a monologue show can get dull despite my trying to intersperse things that would make it less dull and i shouldn't comment on the podcast as i'm recording it um listen up philip let me tell you about this movie Because it's one of my favorites of the year. If not my favorite, I don't know. It's hard to say at this point. I really have to rewatch everything again and figure out exactly where I stand. But um, it is the movie that I wish Woody Allen would still make. And, I mean, I love Blue Jasmine, don't get me wrong. But Listen Up, Philip is something else. Because I'd never... Not since Squid in the Whale have I felt like this desire to smack a character in the face. But also... Embrace its um, realness. It's it's true to life quality about narcissism and how it can be poisonous. And leads to just this vicious cycle of shutting people out of your life because you're so self-absorbed. And Jason Schwartzman plays a self-absorbed writer. Um, Elizabeth Moth is... Moth? Moth? Elizabeth Moth is... Um, She's having a great year with this and the one I love. Um, She plays his girlfriend. And they may or may not break up. And shit gets pretty real. And Jonathan... Oh my god, I'm forgetting the name of the guy from Brazil. Fill in the blank here, folks. You know who he is. Um, This is what I get for not having notes and just trying my best. I could just click on the link to Letterboxd and figure out... Anyway... Jonathan Blank from Brazil plays um, a distinguished author slash mentor for Jason Schwartzman, who sort of talks to him about his personality. And it's it's a very talky, intellectual, at times pretentious movie that I happen to love. And it taps into that Noah Baumbach um, self-hatred and self-critique. That I happen to really find compelling and interesting, and I love the pace of this film. I loved its true to life quality, and I think there are people out there in the world like Jason Schwartzman, and he he just plays narcissists perfectly in every way. Um, between this and Rushmore, it's almost like if Max Fisher grew up to become a uh, a famous author is what this movie essentially is, and I loved it. I really, really, really loved it. It sort of came out of nowhere. I'm not familiar with the director's other work. We'll see what other people think about it, because it's not an easy movie to love. Um, I don't need to talk about Cabin in the Woods. Uh, the Halloween movies. You pretty much know that first one's amazing and the rest kind of suck, more or less. God, what is the deal with the end of Halloween 4 and then Halloween 5 not having the balls to follow through on that the way Halloween 4 ends? That pisses me off. I don't need to go over that. Um, mm, you know, the majority of these films I have talked about, or at least just rewatched to affirm my love for like something like Unforgiven, Masterpiece, um, Miracle Mile is another movie that I probably want to talk on the show with and maybe get Patrick to sit down and watch it with me at some point to see his reaction. Cause it's like after hours only with the apocalypse. Um, so if you haven't seen Miracle Mile, that's another one that's hard to find that I encourage you to seek out. So it is an end-of-the-world scenario with Anthony Edwards at his very best. Um, one of my all-time favorite movies from the 80s. I think it's from the 80s. Um, God. Okay, I think, you know what, for the most part, I've talked about a lot of these movies ad nauseum on the show before in the past and don't really need to reiterate something like Oh my God, guys, The big Lebowski's hilarious. a lot of these movies were like comfort soup while I was while well, I still am struggling with some of the worst pain I've ever had. And you know, seeing movies, like I said, there is no greater gift to um unwinding and um, becoming introspective. I think I've seen a total of like fifty some odd movies in the past two or three weeks, and I'm so grateful that they're out there unlike Garden State, which I now fucking hate. Who? What psychiatrist on earth would prescribe three SSRI medications for anybody, let alone their son? That is, like, toxic. And I know that the psychiatrist that Zach Braff visits in the film says, like, I'm surprised you're still alive with all the medication you're on. Seriously, when he reads the list of medications that Zach Braff is apparently on, and everything's exaggerated in that film, and nothing feels real. It's all just bullshit. I'm watching this movie, I'm like, I actually liked this movie way back in the day. This movie's bullshit. Everything from Nally Portman's you know, like, oh I didn't know you were, I can't believe you're not retarded. I mean, there are things about that movie that I, I cannot believe I give a pass to back in the day and I can't believe people love that movie. I fucking, disp- like it's now on my worst list. It really is. And I I just had this insane opposite response to everything going on. Like, oh, let's open up with a Coldplay song. And God, what psychiatrist on earth? There's, It's impossible to be on three SSRIs without basically um, going through serotonin poisoning. But that doesn't matter. Garden State is not about being true to life or being pure. It's just all wankery. And I fucking hate it. And I'm sorry. Sorry, Zach Braff. I'm not contributing any more to your Kickstarter or Indiegogo bullshit. Um, you suck, and I'm sorry to join the, the hatred, but it's true. And I hope you all watch The Thing on Halloween, because it's a masterpiece. Um, and my god, without having any direction, you can feel this episode coming to a close. You can feel it petering out. I really appreciate everything... That Patrick has done during the transition, and both he and I hope the majority of the listeners out there will be happy to know that once I return to Illinois and get settled and figure out job and um, record some songs and just basically decompress, uh, I will be returning live with Patrick, um, starting with the Robert Altman episode. I mean, if there comes a point where things get really busy and crazy and weird and wild and insane, or I'm still struggling with the um, neuralgia slash post-shingles pain, uh, I may not be on every episode. Who knows? We'll see. But I just want you all to know that I love you, and of course I love Patrick, and I really appreciate the fact that you took the time out to listen to me ramble about movies, and without me sort of prematurely looking over my list to find things worth mentioning because why do I need to talk about The Departed or, you know, um, The Searchers, really? Because I don't know, like these are movies that you know are amazing. I don't need to reiterate why they're so amazing. Um, But I will say that I hate Garden State and Take Shelter becomes one of my top 20 favorite movies, especially with every rewatch I've had since it's come out. I think it is one of the most accurate portrayals of mental illness I've ever seen. And um, it hits home in a lot of ways for me personally. Like, if I ever meet Michael Shannon, I will just thank him. I will shake his hand and thank him for his performance and take shelter. So um, with that in mind, I'm about to close things up. Please send us emails at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to vent about how much you thought this was a chore to get through. Um, And the fact that we should only do bonus episodes with two people like Patrick's incredible contribution with Gabe Powers uh, during the horror movie extravaganza that I absolutely adored. And I adore Patrick for all his work and continuing efforts to keep things going despite my absence and need to hunker down for a bit. But promise, around Christmas time, you'll be hearing from me once again. So Merry Christmas and Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to the show, for becoming a subscriber, for leaving an iTunes review, for sending an email, for visiting DirectorsClubPodcast.com, and for hanging in there with me and um, bearing with me throughout this episode. And I will say that everybody, please make sure you go see Interstellar, Nightcrawler, and Birdman. They're all well worth your time. Um, And I'm glad I got to bring those up and have my friend Derek contribute. I couldn't be more grateful to that guy for a number of reasons. And uh, I'm grateful for all of you as well. Thank you. And I love you, Patrick. And I will see you all very soon around Christmas time. Thank you. Thank you. And good night. Angels calling us, we can see the sunrise before us. And when I'm in that day, I'll make body say, I'll make you say we like a cop cop. Yeah, doing a buck in the latest drop. I got stopped by a lady cop. She got me thinking I could date a cop. Her uniform pants are so tight. She read me my rights. She put me in the car. She cut off her lights. She said I had the right to remain silent. Now I got her hollering, sounding like a siren, talking about.